So part of the American, before we, before we get back to the text, part of the American gospel, the one that is oftentimes in competition with the gospel of Jesus, the American gospel is almost inseparably connected to the American dream. And the American dream at its core is, is, is a great thing, right? You and I, we talk about our brothers and sisters in India who are suffering, right? We oftentimes can't even relate to that, and we're blessed to live in the place we do. Do not hear me wrong. And yet with our culture comes a unique set of difficulties. It might not be outright or external persecution, but you and I are raised with an understanding that is dangerous to our discipleship. And with the American gospel, oftentimes inseparably the American dream. And the American dream at its core is economics, is that you have the opportunity, you have the ability to go out there and to achieve or to earn or to win for yourself a level of prosperity that will unlock for you the desires of your heart. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. Wealth is not a bad thing, right? Scripture never condemns wealth. But Scripture has a whole lot to say about what you do with the wealth, how you treat, how you handle, and how you view wealth. And so we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 10, Paul writes to Timothy, and he gives him a warning, right? This is not just an American thing. We struggle with it heavily in our culture, but all throughout the history of the church, God's people have had to wrestle with, how do I faithfully handle wealth? Whether I've got a little bit or whether I have a lot of it. How do I handle it in a way that's faithful to the calling I have in Jesus? And listen to what Paul encourages Timothy with in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. He says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And we look at that. It's the love of money and the eagerness for it that has the propensity and the tendency to lead you and I away from faithfulness in Jesus. And if you've never felt that pull, that tug on your heart before, you're probably not being very self-aware. You and I live in a culture that we've talked about it all the time. It conditions me. It conditions you to crave and to want more, particularly when it comes to wealth and finances. And we know that the gospel doesn't say that wealth is wrong because you look at the early church. We've looked at the book of Acts the last couple of weeks. What did we talk about in the early church? That the wealthy who had land, what they do? They sold it and they gave some of that money to the church, i.e., there were wealthy Christians. It's not bad to be wealthy. It's not bad to be good with money. And even, in fact, when the church later on in its history, when they get kicked out of the synagogues, Wealthy Christians opened up their homes, and the churches would actually meet in wealthy believers' houses. And so, do not hear me wrong when I say, or when we talk about the issue of wealth. Scripture doesn't condemn wealth, but it has a lot to say about what you and I do with wealth, and most importantly, how we view it. And here's the thing. The American gospel tells you and I that wealth serves two purposes. It secures for me security, and it, it can get for me all the pleasures I want. 
And that's the way that our culture conditions us to use money and to see money. Your money is a means of providing you security, and your money is a means of bringing you the pleasures and the desires of your heart. And when you and I buy into that, that my money, that your money, whatever it is that you have, when you begin to see it as serving those two ends, we have bought into the American gospel because the gospel of Jesus tells me that my security and my pleasure is found in Him. And anytime I supplant Him as the source of my security and my pleasure with anything else, I've bought into a gospel that is not of the kingdom of God. And so my prayer this morning is that as we look at the text, that we would abandon seeing wealth as a way to bring me security and a way to bring me pleasure. That we would be encouraged to live in the way that the gospel calls us to, the good life. That by being generous with whatever I have, whatever you have, I can live the good life of the kingdom. And so as we look particularly now at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, here's what we draw from the text. We'll find that two things about our wealth and the, and the lifestyle of the good life is this, that we be generous and in our generosity that we be cheer-filled, that we be joyful in how we sacrifice and in how we give for the benefit of others. And so when we look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, this is the second half of something that Paul's talking about. If you notice, he's talking about something that's already going on. And in 2 Corinthians 8, what's taking place is this. Paul's on a missionary journey. He's going around, he's planting churches the first time, but now he's going around again, and he's visiting them. He's encouraging them, but he also has another purpose. Back in Judea, in the area of Jerusalem, the Christians there were suffering, just like our brothers and sisters today are suffering in India. And so Paul is now going around to all the churches that he's planted. He's encouraging them, but he's also raising funds to take back with him to bless the believers in Judea who are suffering, who are losing their economic opportunity. And so he's going throughout the churches and he's raising money, right? That's not a new thing in the history of the church. It's always been there. And so he's gone to the churches north of Corinth in Macedonia, and he's gone there to raise money. And he says this to the Macedonians, hey, your brothers and sisters in Corinth, they have promised to give generously. So may that be an encouragement to you, Macedonian Christians. You also give generously. And 2 Corinthians 8 reveals to us that they do that. And you look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 2 through 5. We're going to go back to this in a few minutes. But one of the things that you find from these verses is that they open up in generosity, which is difficult for the Macedonians because they're poor too. And yet they pour out in generosity to such an extent that Paul and his team are blown away that they would even be so generous. They gave more than Paul imagined they could. But then that kind of puts Paul in a dilemma because now some of the Macedonian Christians, some of those brothers, are going with Paul back to Jerusalem and they're going first to Corinth. And Paul has made big claims on how generous the Corinthian Christians are going to be. Now, the Corinthian Christians made those promises too, and now Paul is getting a little worried. He's like, man, what happens now these Macedonian Christians are coming with me? What happens if they get here and the Corinthians are like, nah, I'm good. I know I promised that I would be generous, but listen, all these bills came up, 
taxes were harder than I thought they were going to be, so I actually can't be as generous as I, as I kind of promised you I would do. And so Paul begins to worry because he's told the Macedonians, and these poor brothers and sisters gave generously, and now he's worried that the Corinthians, when they arrive, are going to be like, eh, we're not going to follow through on the promise we made of generosity. And so, like any good pastor, he writes this letter ahead, and he says, get the money ready. Get it ready, because when we come, I don't want you and me to be embarrassed. That we boasted about, not proudly, but we were happy to say we will contribute to the needs of the church. And the Corinthians oftentimes are a lot like you and me. We have the tendency to make big promises in the beginning. And then when it actually comes time to follow through on those promises, primarily with money, all of a sudden we start to think about, oh, you know what, that sounded good six months ago, but a lot's changed in my life. And so here's why I can't be as generous as I promised. So Paul's writing ahead saying, hey, gather the money now. Better to do it now ahead of time while it's a cheerful gift than to kind of have the brothers and sisters come and you'd be like, all right, fine, I'll open up my checkbook because you're here. And so it's some really practical advice. Now, what we don't want to do is look at this and just think that the way the early church gave was out of coercion, right? That, don't get me wrong. Paul is pretty strong in his encouragement about why they ought to be generous, but he's not trying to strong arm them. He's trying to strongly encourage them with why it's important for God's people to be generous, right? And as a pastor, as anybody who's led in the church, you feel his tension of like, oh man, Paul, don't be talking about my money. And yet it's so important for you and I to live in line with the gospel of Jesus when it comes to how we handle what we have. Whether you're a, a young millennial who just got married and you actually have like change, or whether you're a boomer and beyond and you're enjoying retirement years, whatever that is, I don't know. I hope to experience that one day with you. But everything in between, whether you've got a little bit or whether you've got a lot, the gospel message is the same, that we would be cheerful, generous followers of Jesus. And so that's the background of why Paul's writing this part of the letter. He's like, hey, I'm coming. My encouragement to you is that you follow through with the generosity that you've promised. Now, we're going to be looking particularly at verses 6 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 9. Because in 6 through 11 is where Paul gives them the theology. He gives them the reasoning behind why they should give. It's not just, don't embarrass me. It's not just, don't embarrass yourselves by not following through on a promise. But he walks us through the important theology behind why, as God's people, we're called to be generous, and why it is that we can look in the midst of our culture and say with sincerity and, and sincere faith, no, I truly believe that as a follower of Jesus, the best life for me is a life of generosity. I, I truly believe because of my faith in Jesus that I can live differently than my culture maybe has trained me to. Because I see the world and I see my wealth and I see everything I have in different lenses than my culture. It's the good life of the kingdom. So let's look at this. First look at verse 6. He says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously 
will also reap generously. And so he opens up with an agrarian example, right? Any farmers in the room? David, you're not a farmer. You mow the grass, bro. (laughs) That's a lot different than farm work. So for those of us who aren't farmers, I've never planted anything in my life. When you don't throw out seed, you can't expect anything to grow. I'm not, I'm not a farmer, but I, I, I kind of got that from Wikipedia. If I don't throw out seed, it won't grow. If I throw out a lot of seed, I have better chances of things to grow, right? That's the extent of my agrarian knowledge. But here's what Paul is saying. In the same way, in our lives, you and I have a choice about how we sow and invest. And if you and I choose to sow weakly, sparingly just means that. If I'm going to throw out a little bit, then the gospel tells me, biblical wisdom tells me that I ought not to expect to reap generously. Now, now don't hear this wrong, right? There, there are plenty of preachers who will love to use this verse to treat generosity like an investment principle. Like, hey, if you just throw out enough money, God's got you. He's going to give you that back with a solid investment return. 8%, 10%. I can't make any guarantees on his economy, but it's going to be good. You're going to get more back, right? That's not what the gospel says. This is not an investment model. So if you're looking for how to retire, this isn't it. But here's what happens. Look back again, like I mentioned. Look back at chapter 8. Listen to the way that Paul talks about what these brothers and sisters experienced. But look at how God responds to them. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Right? Think about that. Right? The New Testament writers are not exaggerative. So when he says extreme poverty, he means extreme poverty. It welled up in rich generosity. But look at verse 1. Look at right before that. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about what? The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So think about this. These Macedonian Christians, we don't know a whole lot about them. But what we do know about them is that they were going through trials, and they were extremely poor. And yet, look at how Paul describes that. It resulted, both of those things resulted in rich generosity. We don't know how much they gave. It probably wasn't a whole lot of money. And yet, look at how God responds in verse 1. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, this is not grace as in salvation, He's not talking about, oh, hey, your Macedonian brothers and sisters, they wrote big checks, and now God has delivered them grace. That's not good theology. That's terrible theology. So it's not talking about salvation. It's not saying they wrote big checks and God blessed them with grace. But what he is talking about when he's talking about grace here, he's talking about the unmerited kindness of God. That in their poverty, in their severe trial, they gave generously Do you think they got an economic return for what they gave? I really doubt it. I really doubt that the Macedonian church became a a wealthy church because of what they gave. But Scripture says this, I want you to know about the grace of God towards these brothers and sisters. So part of it is this. 
When he says they sow sparingly, they receive sparingly, he's not talking about economic investment on your re- or return of investment. He's not talking about back with interest. What he's talking about is when God's people choose to be generous or choose not to be generous, they ought to expect the biblical principle to take place in their lives, that they are going to reap what they sow. Look at Proverbs 11. This is biblical wisdom for us. Proverbs 11, verse 24, describes this kind of person. It says this, One person gives freely, yet gains even more. And another withholds unduly and comes to poverty. Here's where you and I have to, if we can't understand this piece about the gospel and about God's view of the good life, then it will forever remain a mystery and you and I will forever be living lives where we reap sparingly. Because you may be thinking, and I think this all the time myself too, I don't have much, God. And it's really hard for me in those times when I don't have much to consider sowing generously. And yet the gospel tells me that's exactly what I'm supposed to do. That I need to sow generously. Why? Not because God promises me a healthy return on investment. I may never see that economic balance sheet work out favorably for me. But what I do see God promise me is that as I sow generously, as I entrust my wealth to Him by living out the good life of generosity, I can trust that my God is going to be generous to me. And it may have nothing to do with generosity and finances. But for some of us, you may be sitting there wondering, why do I feel like I've got weak harvests? And it's because you've continued to choose to sow weakly. And Scripture is clear on that. If we sow weakly, we will harvest weakly. And so I just want to challenge us as the church, right? We, I mean, we don't turn in tax forms to the church, right? I don't know how much you make. I don't know how little you make. But that's not the point. It doesn't matter about how much you have. But God is asking us, what do you do with what he's entrusted to you? Are you sowing generously? Whether you've got fat stacks or whether you've got my bank account, are you sowing generously? Whatever that looks like to you. Are you sowing generously? And if you're not, and you're wondering why you've got a life of weak harvests, I would challenge you to consider the truth of what Scripture presents. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. And then it continues on in verse 7, and we look at this. It says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And here is the part of giving where I think many of us, we never fully understand it, and so giving will always remain a mystery to us. Because the gospel says, not about how much you give, but it's about the heart behind the giving. Are you glad to entrust the Lord? And I'm not just talking about what you give to the church, but I'm talking about in all areas of generosity in your life. Whenever you see people in need, are you generous to them? And when you do give, what's the heart like behind it? Are you glad to give away what you have? Or do you do it grudgingly? 
or out of guilt. And this is the one that you and I, we, I think this one dominates the church more often than not. Is people feel like, I got to give because I got to give. And we give out of guilt. Or we, we, we live generously towards other people because I feel guilted into it. And I'm always challenged with this thought of, does God really need my money? Does God really need your money? I mean, if you think that the checks you're dropping are like shattering the kingdom's budget, God doesn't need our money. He wants to know the heart behind our giving. Now, oftentimes as we look through, through Scripture, God is far less concerned with the external as He is with the internal. So when, when Paul is writing and saying, hey, be generous, it's not because they really need the money. God's got money. He's good. But he wants to see his people reflect his heart of generosity. And we see that in, uh, we see the way that God views people. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is when, uh, it's not talking about money, but this is when God is choosing the king of Israel to replace Saul. And so the prophet Samuel goes to David's family, and there's all these brothers lined up. Now, David's the runt of the litter. He's the little one. So in external view, he has the least to offer, so much so that like any good father, his dad doesn't even invite him for consideration. He invites all the other brothers and doesn't even extend the invitation for David because he thinks he's such a non-entity. And then we see in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, listen to this. this is, now, this is in the context, God choosing Israel's king. But it reveals the way that God sees the external and the internal in comparison. And listen to what he says, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we see that lived out all throughout God's people. God is far less concerned with the external than he is compared to the internal. Because here's why. He knows that when the internal is right, when it is good, it will automatically take care of the external. When my heart is in line with his heart, I don't have to think about the external. I do it. And that's why when we think about generosity, that's where so many of us in the church go wrong. Whenever we hear about being generous people, automatically we're, we're just welled up with feelings of guilt. I need to be generous. I don't really actually know why, but if Louie passes me that plate one more week and I don't put anything into it, like I'm going to get a reputation up in here. It's not about that. It's not about how much you give. It's about, man, what's my heart behind it? Do I give generously to the church? Do I give generously to the people in my life? But not just do I do it generously, do I do it cheerfully too? And for those of us who never get to the difference between guilt and cheerfulness, this will always remain a difficulty for us. That's why for some people, to be generous feels like you're paying taxes. Does anybody li actually like tax season? Nobody. Good. All right, you're honest people. 
Everybody hates tax season. Why? Because it's my money. And I just write it and it goes away. And, and so oftentimes we see that in relation to the kingdom. We view it like paying taxes. I don't like paying taxes. I pay my taxes. Don't get me wrong. I don't like paying them, though. And oftentimes I have that same heart set when I go to God's kingdom. Like God is just another Uncle Sam. And yet God is saying, no, 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 no. If, if you're seeing it this way, yeah, you may be getting the external down, but man, you're missing the whole point of what generosity does. And that's what we see in verses 8 through 11. This is the, this is the point. It's not about money. Remember, God doesn't need your money. But he cares about the heart behind why you give. Because he wants it to be his. And listen to this. Verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also, listen, supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Why is generosity so important? Right? You would, be, you would be missing the whole point of the good life of generosity if you left this room this morning and felt like, man, Ryan just spoke to me for 30 minutes and he guilted me into giving money to the kingdom. Why is generosity important? It's not about money. Because remember the American gospel. The American gospel teaches me that wealth brings me security and it brings me my pleasures. And generosity breaks me of those bad habits. And like Scripture says... God is able to bless me abundantly. When I live out his heart, when you choose to sow generously and live like him, what you're doing is you and I are declaring with our faith, God, I'm going to give generously. It doesn't make sense to my culture, but I trust and it's going to enlarge my faith that you're the one that provides for me. It's a discipline that breaks me of believing my wealth gets me security and pleasure. And it helps root me back in the biblical principle that only in Him can I find my security and my pleasure. And that's my prayer for us. This is not about money, right? We're not going to pass the plates a second time as we head out today. That's not what this is about. This is about being God's people who have God's heart, who truly believe that the good life is not in my Roth IRA. It's not in my savings accounts. It's not in my house. It's not in my cars. It's not in my stuff. It's not in my accounts. But I truly and firmly believe that God is my provider. I truly believe that God is my security. And I know what that feels like because we've talked about it before. I fall to this all the time. I feel differently when I look at the account on the first than when I look at the account on the 31st. I feel so much more secure at the beginning of the month than I do at the end of the month. And what that reveals to my soul is that my trust my security is still connected to those numbers. As much as I want to believe it's not, God knows how to get me, and he wipes it out. Well, I wipe it out. Let's put it that way. It's not his fault. But when I spend my money and then I look at my bank account, it's not where I want it to be. Maybe somebody else in the room can relate. 
Then I start to think about, man, why do I feel so insecure right now? Why do I feel worry? Why do I not feel safe? It's because I fall and pray to my culture's gospel that my security and my pleasures are tied to my money. And so my prayer, you guys, is that we would be the kind of people who train our faith differently through generosity. That in giving generously, both to our church and to those in our lives who have need, that we would be the kind of people who have our faith transformed, that we would live the good life, a life that finds its security and its pleasures in Him, not in our wealth. And so that's my prayer as we wrap up our time in Scripture this morning. I don't know where you're at in this process. Maybe, I mean, I'm not going to ask us to discuss it, right? That's what small groups are for, connect groups, to work through this kind of stuff. But I don't know where you're at in dealing with the good life of generosity. Maybe you're wrestling with, Lord, I don't trust you with what I've got. But I know what weak harvests feel like. And I don't want to harvest weekly. I want a life of abundance, not economic abundance but an abundance of your grace and kindness and blessing. For some of you, maybe you've been giving faithfully, and yet you've never done it cheerfully. And I pray that you would just fall in love with the lifestyle of generosity. No matter where we're at, I pray that you'd be encouraged in the direction of being disciples of Jesus who have his heart to live the good life of generosity. Would you guys pray with me?